So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. We talk today to Dr. Don Carl, the founder and executive director of the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin, an archive of documentary and material culture evidence of key themes in U.S. and world history. Carlton talks about the Briscoe Center's new book, Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, published by UT Press and in which Carlton writes the preface. The book provides little-seen photographic documentation of the horrific human toll of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II. Don, welcome to With the Bark Off. Good to be here, Mark. Thank you. Well, before we get into Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, I think we need to talk about the, the Briscoe Center, which you founded in 1979, and, and what led you to this project? Well, the Briscoe Center is, is we call it a history research center because the philosophy is that uh, we, we build archival collections to document U.S. history. We also have a rare book library, by the way. Um, and the reason we call it a history research center is uh, because uh, our philosophy is not just to collect uh, these primary sources and documentation for studying history and providing the, the evidence of history that historians and other researchers absolutely depend on uh, to write history. But uh, we, do hist- we do our own historical research projects ourselves as well. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a medical center where you, you, know, you treat the patient, but you also do your own medical research. Well, this is, ex- this is my kind of model for a history center. We don't just store the collections and hope somebody comes and uses them. We, you know, we, we do our own research projects, uh, web projects, uh, exhibits, uh, documentary film, uh, and of course, books like this one. So, but given your vast uh, collection of photography, you uh, came to know about this collection through the anti-nuclear photographers movement of Japan. Talk about that movement, uh, who comprises that group and how they approached you for this project. Well, the group was, they were put together uh, several decades ago, actually, as part of the anti-nuclear movement in Japan that followed, uh, of course, the bombings. Uh, and their, their objective, they're, they're an anti-nuclear, as, a, as their name implies, they're anti-nuclear war. And uh, their main uh, goal in Japan was to uh, really educate new ed- uh, generations. Uh, that came after the actual bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, about the, you know, uh, what the country went through with the, with the atomic bombings. And, but basically they're not revisionists about history or they're not trying to be apologists for Japan or anything else. They're part of the larger anti-nuclear movement in the, in the world. Uh, I mean, it's an international focus. Um, and their main objective was to, uh, Seek, go out and collect the photographic evidence of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
Uh, and these photographs were scattered all over Japan. So they worked for a long time, uh, you know, contacting people and finding these photographs, uh, showing the impact of the bombing. And that's been their project. That's been their main project. And they gathered, they've gathered some, something short of a thousand images, um, something like 800 in all. And they scanned them and they created an archive in Japan. And interestingly enough, the Japanese uh, themselves, uh, not just the new generations, but the older generations hadn't seen most of these photographs, which we can get into. So um, at any rate, that's their goal. And they contacted me uh, because uh, we have the Eddie Adams photo archive. Eddie Adams was the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who famed for his Saigon execution shooting uh, the photograph the, uh, that was taken during the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War in 1968. Uh, Eddie Adams uh, had document had gone over to Hiroshima and did a, a sort of photo documentary on the 50th anniversary, no, the 40th anniversary, I'm sorry, uh, of the bombing. And he met some of these photographers, uh, Japanese photographers, uh, and they had a friendship and so forth. And of course, Eddie passed away several years ago and his widow, Alyssa Adams, donated his entire archive to the Briscoe Center. And because of that, uh, the anti-nuclear photographers movement, uh, when they had decided that they wanted to share these photographic images uh, with some American institution, uh, higher education, um, they contacted me through the good offices of Alyssa Adams, who mm. they already knew. And that's how we got connected uh, with the organization. And that was that's why they exist, is to educate people about the dangers of nuclear war. So in the New York Times article about the book, you're quoted as saying, I was very leery of this whole project because I was afraid there was going to be an agenda. And there was an agenda but it was the same one that I was interested in. So what do you hope to achieve with this book? What is your agenda? Well, the primary agenda as a research center that we've already discussed is to, is to acquire documentation about all aspects of American history. And certainly uh, it's the United States that dropped the atomic bombs uh, on Japan. So it's very much a, a segment of American history. So we're fulfilling our uh, mission of documenting American history by getting these photographs. Uh, I was leery because I did not uh, want to be involved in any kind of effort with a Japanese organization or an American organization, as far as that goes, in refighting the war and relitigating the reasons for the war. Uh, there are entire libraries uh, full of books about that. And that's a, a, an endless argument, you know, should we have dropped the bomb or not? So I didn't want to get engaged in some sort of, uh, uh, with some sort of nationalistic organization that might be seeking an apology uh, from us uh, for some, you know, for the, for the bombing. So when I went to Japan um, to meet with the nuclear photographer, anti-nuclear photographers movement people, uh, we realized that we had the same agenda and that, and the same enemy, and that enemy was no longer each other, uh, but uh, nuclear war. And that's, that's when I was sold on the whole project because it met our goal as well. Your book quotes one of the photographers uh, who took these photographs as saying to victims, as he was trying to do his work, I beg you to allow me to take pictures of your utmost suffering. I'm determined to let people in this world know without speaking a word what kind of apocalyptic tragedies 
you have gone through. But as you mentioned a moment ago, Don, many uh, of the Japanese uh, populace hadn't seen these photographs. Why? Well, the the interesting thing about this is I uh, was aware before we did the project that uh, the story of the making of the atomic bomb uh, was well known. We've there's multiple books about it, movies about it, and so forth. And that uh, we know an awful lot about the physicists. We know a lot about the science. We know a lot about the Manhattan Project, and uh, we know about the bombing crews and the B-29s that dropped the bomb. But the story in the United States tends to end with the opening of the Bombay doors. Mm-hmm. Um, we see the mushroom cloud. There are plenty of photographs of the mushroom clouds uh, from the American airplanes. Uh, but we don't pay a lot of attention about what happened on the ground. And so, the, but the real surprise for me, I already knew, you know, we all uh, were aware of that issue. But the real surprise for me was to learn that these photographs were all banned. All of these photographs, all of the Japanese photographs that were taken of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the days after uh, the bombing uh, literally were prohibited. The, and, and so the, the Japanese government, the military government of Japan, uh, sent uh, soldiers into Hiroshima and Nagasaki to confiscate any photographs uh, that may have existed because they were still trying to convince their people that they were winning the war, uh, the military regime. Uh, and, uh, so they didn't want to publish that evidence of the, of how horrible, uh, these weapons were. It was a morale, a morale issue for one thing with the Japanese people. So they tried to destroy these photographs and most of these photographs were taken by photojournalists, uh, in Japan who were wise to what the government was up, going to be up to. And many of these photographs were buried and hidden in, in various places. Um, and that's the reason they exist. Well, the irony is that when the United States occupied Japan uh, and Douglas MacArthur was the Supreme Commander in Tokyo, he also banned the photographs um, because the United States tried to spin the nuclear bombing, or they should say the nuclear bombs, as conventional weapons. Uh, they did not want the American public to realize how horrific these weapons were and are. Um, so they didn't, they hid the evidence of, uh, of the human, uh, horrors, uh, that resulted from the bombing. They also wanted to play down. In fact, they wanted to, um, hide, uh, the damage created by radiation. Uh, they were peddling a story to the American public, the military, American, the American military, uh, that there was no radiation problem, that, that mm-hmm. wasn't anything to worry about at all. Uh, which the photographs belie uh, that story. Uh, you, most of the photographs, that, we, for example, we have many in the book, show you know the victims who have uh, irradiated uh, and the scars and the horrors. So uh, the United States government banned the photographs. Uh, interestingly enough, the Soviet Union banned the photographs as well. Uh, because they were trying, Stalin was trying to build his own atomic uh, uh, bombs, and he didn't want the Soviet people, the Russian people, uh, to be demoralized uh, by the idea of atomic warfare. So that's the curious and interesting thing. All three of those countries, including ours, banned the photographs. So it's a miracle that most of them survived. 
So you've got the, the, the American government, the Soviet government, and the Japanese government trying to keep these photographs from being published, from, from getting out into the public. How do they come together, Don? Well, that's where the, Amer the anti-nuclear photographers movement comes in. Uh, those photographs were, in fact, uh, hidden, but then they were brought out and kept by the photographers uh, themselves uh, and they, their families, the photographers who died, their families still had them. And so the, uh, the anti-nuclear photographers uh, members went all over the country uh, contacting people that they thought may have the photographs. And that's where the photographs come from. And they brought them to light. Uh, there, there are a handful of photographs in this book that have been published in the United States, uh, but the vast majority of them have not uh, been. Of the many desolate, somber photographs uh, that you came across, are there any that, that were especially striking to you? Well, all of the photographs of people. Uh, the photographs of the of the landscape and the and the buildings, uh, frankly, are like any photographs that you see of bombed out cities in World War II. Uh, uh, so that's you know as horrible as that is, unfortunately, that's fairly common when you look at photography of, uh, taken during of cities during World War II. The horrific thing, or the radiation, uh, the victims of radiation burns and radiation sickness. Uh, there's no one particular photograph uh, that stands out in my mind. They all kind of blend to, into this horrible, horrific uh, picture. Uh, but those are the ones that, that really, you know, assault the senses. Right. Your father, as you mentioned in the preface, was in the Army Air Force in World War II. He was training in California for an invasion of Japan when the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb in Hiroshima on August 6th. He supported President Truman's decision to drop the bombs and believed his life may have been saved by that decision. And that's been the American narrative. The, the Japanese would not have quit without a show of overwhelming force compelling their surrender. So dropping the bombs saved untold American and allied lives. Given what you've learned through this project, do you think that's accurate? Did, did, were there other choices that we had? in ending the war in the Pacific? Well, it's accurate that my father believed that, and I had uncles who believed it as well. Uh, that's actually uh, still, to this day, an extremely complex issue. Uh, and there are arguments going on all around us, anyone who is interested in the topic. Uh, it has not been resolved to this day. Uh, you know, how many people might have been killed if we had invaded Japan? Uh, there are multiple, there are different uh, estimates that range from the tens of thousands to the millions. Uh, it's, it's that complex. Um, no, I don't know that this is ever going to be resolved, to tell you the truth. It's 75 years later, um, and it, it, there are various schools of thought about, it. did the bomb itself bring an end to the war? Well, that, that's even a conflicted uh, uh, belief. Um, so it's, it, you know, when I was uh, teaching a methodology course to graduate students in the history department, I used to use the dropping of the bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a classic example of, it is a fact that those bombs were dropped, but why were they dropped and what was the result still are unresolved. Hmm. You toured Japan as you were pursuing this project. How do the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki continue 
to affect the Japanese psyche? Well, you know, the the uh, older generation, particularly anybody over, let's see, gosh, you know, it's 75 years now. Uh, anybody over, certainly over 70, uh, is still a vivid thing uh, in their consciousness. There are still survivors uh, uh, of the bombing. We met several of them in Nagasaki and Hiroshima and also in Tokyo. The, but their concern, like so many other periods of history, uh, that the younger generation is losing any knowledge uh, of those of the atomic bombs. Uh, again, which is one of the motives of the anti-nuclear photographers movement uh, to present the younger generations with these photographs so that they will not forget what happened uh, on those two days in those two cities. Aside from uh, Hiroshima and, and, and Nagasaki, are there are there reminders uh, throughout Japan of the horrors of World War II, not just the 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 bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but but of the war in general, it does. This, do you still get a, a sense of that from the Japanese populace? Well, that's a very controversial subject uh, in Japan, uh, Mark, uh, because Japan's uh, former enemies, uh, particularly China and Korea, in uh, the Philippines and and other places in Asia, uh, do not believe that the Japanese uh, government has really properly apologized. Uh, for invading their countries and for the atrocities that they committed in those countries. Uh, so the, you know, the Japanese tend to, uh, my feeling is they tend to play down, they don't talk about the war, essentially. And of course, again, we're dealing with younger generations now, you have to remember. Um, and uh, so it's it's a complicated subject as well. It's a sensitive subject because of of the war crimes that were committed by the Japanese military. Uh, and there are a lot of Japanese who do admit uh, that their military committed some pretty horrific crimes uh, during the war. Uh, and a lot of people resent uh, that military, you know, the legacy of that military government. Um, but uh, it, of course, the shrine to the Japanese war dead uh, in Tokyo is a very controversial place as well. And we went there. And I can see why it's controversial because it, uh, it celebrates uh, the soldiers of the of World War II, the Japanese of the Imperial Army. Uh, there's no mention of any atrocities anywhere in that museum. Um, so it's it's a conflicted story even in Japan. What was the biggest revelation for you coming out of this project, Don? Uh, I, I was unaware of the concerted effort to hide, to hide the, the visual evidence of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, I, I was not aware of that until we started this project. I did not know to the extent to which the United States and Japan, for opposite reasons, by the way, um, you know, basically tried to destroy that evidence and hide it. Uh, that was a that was a big surprise to me. Um, otherwise, I knew already a lot about the, the the history of the of the of the bombing and and you know that sort of thing. But that surprised me. I didn't know about that. You know, John Hersey wrote uh, you know a book called Hiroshima, and it uh, was an entire issue of the New Yorker magazine in August of 1946, and that was the first information that got out to the American public about what happened uh, in those cities. And he put in words what our book puts in pictures. 
Mm. Um, and he concentrated on six different uh, people and followed their stories. Well, that book, of course, is a classic. It was a bestseller. Schools have adopted it as a textbook and so forth. I like to think of our, let me say, that book is not illustrated because he couldn't get the photographs. Uh, I like to think of our book uh, as a, sort of a compliment uh, to John Hersey's book, uh, Hiroshima, that this is John Hersey's book in photographs. Right, right. What's behind the book's title, Flash of Light, Wall of Fire? Uh, when President Obama uh, uh, visited uh, Hiroshima uh, in 2016, uh, he gave a speech there at the memorial. And the, it comes from a pulled quote, We this quote from his speech. And the speech, the pulled quote reads, a flash of light and a wall of fire destroyed a city and demonstrated that mankind possesses the means to destroy itself, unquote. So we were reading a speech and Ben Wright, who was on the team, uh, ben Wright and Allison Beck, uh, both are uh, in the administration of the Briscoe Center and worked with me and went with me to Japan. Uh, ben Wright was reading his speech and and he's the one who pulled that out as a title for this book. There are still survivors uh, of the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What, what, are, what, what do they say typically about those experiences, uh, Don? Are, are there common denominators that come up from those who witnessed the bombings? Yes, it, it, there is a commonality uh, to their experience. There's a commonality in the larger sense uh, with literally seeing a flash of light and, a, and then experiencing a wall of fire. Uh, but then there's uh, less of a commonality with specific uh, individual experiences. You know, we did visit with a number of survivors, uh, but for many, many years after the uh, bombings, they were shunned. Uh, by many Japanese people, um, and they like they were tainted, and there was a great fear in Japan uh, about radiation poisoning, and it was almost like they were you know typhoid Marys walking around, and of course you know anyone who who's been damaged by radiation can't give it to someone else; it's not an infectious disease, but they did suffer discrimination uh, as survivors in Japan, and some and some still do, by the way. How did that discrimination manifest itself in everyday oh, life? Oh, being shunned, uh, uh, being desocialized in a sense, uh, not, you know, uh, being sort of separated uh, from uh, normal society. What did those cities look like in the immediate aftermath? I mean, take us through the, the, the evolution of those cities out of the ashes of these atomic bombs. Well, they, of course, uh, spent, I guess it must have been a period of three or four years before they really uh, started, uh, you know, getting all the damage cleared out and the rubble and so forth. But amazingly enough, the trams were running within a couple of days again mm. in both cities. Um, you know, you have to understand that in Hiroshima, for example, you know, the population of uh, Hiroshima was 350,000 uh, people. Uh, when we dropped the bomb. And we'll never know how many people actually died, um, you know, uh, from the bombing, but the estimate's about 140,000. Uh, but the important thing with respect to your question, 
really little over five square miles of the city of Hiroshima was incinerated, essentially. Um, that's shocking and horrible, but a few people, I think most people, when they think of the atomic bombing, think the entire uh, entity of the city was incinerated or destroyed. And that's not accurate. Uh, that doesn't in any way discount the horror uh, or anything else. Uh, but in uh, Nagasaki, for example, had 240,000 people living there. It was a smaller city. The estimated death total was 74,000. And 2.6 miles of the city was incinerated. Half, the, half of what was done. And the reason for that is because the bomb uh, that was dropped in Nagasaki was, was exploded at the wrong time. So there was a little bit of difference between that, between the bombs. But also the the uh, sort of the, where Nagasaki is located uh, geographically, it's in it's it's in a, a bowl surrounded by mountains, mm -hmm. uh, which actually kept some of the blast effects more concentrated. Uh, so, but the city remarkably recovered. You know, pretty well. It's hard. It's all relative when you say pretty quickly. Uh, you know, it took them years. Uh, but of course, the city's been completely rebuilt. Um, sure. It's a whole new city now. Both cities, I should say. Why those cities? Why did we target uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki as opposed to other Japanese cities? Both have been relatively untouched uh, by American bombing uh, before this. And one of the things that the American military was very keen on was to be able uh, to measure and gauge uh, the destructiveness of both bombs. And for example, if uh, you know Tokyo had been firebombed uh, a few weeks before this, and pretty much incinerated, uh, you know, and so if you dropped an atomic bomb on a city that was already destroyed, you weren't going to be able to tell much about how damaging the bomb uh, was. So they picked those two cities because they were relatively unscathed, uh, so that they could see the military, U.S. military, uh, could see you know, how damaging uh, these explosions were going to be. And so that's the main reason why mm. they were picked. Nagasaki was actually a secondary target. The first, the primary target uh, for that second bombing was another city in Japan. Uh, but the weather was so bad that they had to fall back on Nagasaki as a secondary site. Um, actually, and both of them, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were both uh, port cities. Mm. Uh, and they uh, did have military uh, facilities there. And, you know, uh, Hiroshima is uh, the home of the Mitsubishi Corporation. And the Mitsubishi Corporation built Zeros uh, and were the sort of the manufacturer of choice for military weapons uh, and for the Japanese army. So they, there were military installations at both places. Well, what is happening in the Japanese government? after the bomb drops on uh, Hiroshima on August 6, 1945? Well, just, you know, the main folk, the people, a lot of the leaders of the military in Japan committed uh, suicide. Um, the civil government, most of them remained intact, but they were had been powerless really under the military uh, uh, dictatorship. Uh, and then, of course, we had war crimes trials uh, and... Uh, uh, hung people like Tojo, who had been prime minister, um, and some of the generals. 
so there was a, a, a group within the Japanese civil government who some of them had even gone to school in the United States uh, who really realized that the only way Japan was going to survive as a society was to really play ball with the victor, uh, which they did. And when the United States decided to not try uh, the emperor, Hirohito, as a war criminal, uh, that really made, uh, really brought along the civil government of Japan is to cooperate and to make the occupation run as smoothly as possible, because it was all about saving the emperor. And once that was accomplished, they, you know, they were, it worked out. I mentioned, Don, that you wrote the preface of this book. You had other contributors. Talk about who you tapped to write the other material that supports these very powerful photographs. Uh, well, Mark, the, the main essay was written by a professor of history here at the University of Texas, Austin, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Michael Stoff. Um, and Michael's working on his own book about uh, the bombing of Nagasaki and the after effects. Uh, he was doing that. That's why we tapped him to write this uh, main essay for the book, in fact, uh, because we knew he was doing this research. And he's the one who contributed the main text uh, to the book. I also asked Michiko Tanaka, who is a journalist uh, with the Hiroshima newspaper. Uh, as a, a, she was born many years after the bombing, uh, and she speaks English very well and, and writes English. And she interviewed me for the paper uh, when, when I was in Japan. And I was impressed with her. And she grew up in Hiroshima. And so I asked her to contribute an essay about what it was like uh, as a member of the younger generation and as a woman uh, to, to grow up in Hiroshima, uh, being surrounded by the war memorials and, and that legacy. And she's written a very nice essay about that as well. So they are the main contributors. What are the next projects that the Briscoe Center is embarking on? Well, right now we're, we're planning to, you know, we had planned to open a major uh, exhibit of these photographs uh, at, the, at, our, at our main gallery in uh, Sid Richardson Hall and the COVID-19 uh, interfered in that. Uh, so we're now going to uh, open that exhibit, hopefully with any luck at all, um, and uh, next August uh, for the 76th anniversary uh, of the bombing. And so that's one of the things. We've got four or five books coming out uh, as well. We publish books, as you know, uh, with the University of Texas Press. Uh, and the other is just simply trying to right now run the center remotely. We're all working from home. It's very familiar to us. The, the book is Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, our guest is Dr. Don Carlton. Don, thanks so much for being with us. Well, Mark, thanks for asking. Appreciate it. My thanks to Dr. Don Carlton, to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and of course, to you for joining us. You can purchase a signed copy of Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, or any of the books covered in previous episodes through our online store at lbjstore.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.